in approximately six minutes, I am going to be interviewing a guy who, do you know what, I'll tell you how I came across him. I was listening to a clubhouse room and um, I can't even remember what the room was, what the conversation was, but the discussion had come around to mindset and this guy pops up and he's talking about, you know, sort of, you know, taking small steps towards a goal and how, you know, basically like incremental gains, you know, all, all the all the tiny things that you can do to help you move forward, it all mounts up. And, and that's something I really believe in, something that is actually quite close to my heart because I've, I've, as I've shared in other episodes in, in different ways, and if, if we've ever spoken one-to-one and I've given you the full, the very long story, um, there's a lot of things over the last few years that I have dealt with and overcome. And the only way I've been able to do it and get to where I am today is by being really focused on a goal and, and chipping away at it bit by bit by bit. So everything this guy was saying just really struck a chord with me. And I thought, yeah, this is a guy I'd like to have a conversation with. So I clicked through to his profile on Clubhouse and read his bio and just sat there just in awe of the humility of this individual. I don't want to go, I don't want to introduce him too much before the interview starts because I really want him to introduce himself and tell his story. But as we go into this, I think it's important for me to say that there are some stories out there that shock you. There are some stories out there that um, anger you or, you know, affect you emotionally, that dig into your fears, that, you, you know, there's different stories have different aspects to them. For me, there are a lot of things within this story that sort of strike chords with me or tap into things that make me very uncomfortable, make me um, things that I'm fearful of. So I'm actually going into this interview thinking, how the hell am I going to get through the next 45 minutes, whatever it is, without falling apart? I don't think I've ever been quite as nervous going into um, an interview as I am today. And yet when Mark starts to speak... He is, he's just so cool and so normal and he has such humility um, that I, I just feel really privileged to be going into this one. So just wanted to share that with you. But yeah, let's get into it. Morning, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I um, I imagine you're getting used to hearing those words at the minute. Welcome to my podcast. Welcome to my podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing a few of them at the moment, but it's all good. It's fun. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's um, getting to meet a lot of people, I imagine, along the way, yeah. some interesting characters. Absolutely. Um, cool. So I've done a little pre-intro to this and just kind of said like how I, how I came across you basically, which was listening into a clubhouse room and you were speaking and there were a few things that you said that really kind of um, struck a chord with me and I thought this is a guy I'd, I'd love to have a chat with. And then I clicked through to your bio and found out who you were and read a little bit about your story. Mm-hmm. 
So um, I haven't done anything to actually introduce who you are, what that story is. Um, okay. But I have put a little bit of a warning on that because I was obviously sort of researching and looking at some of your content, looking, listening to some of the other podcasts you've done. Um, and in one of those podcasts, you talked about other people sharing their stories with you and how some of those stories are quite uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. For me, your story is uncomfortable. Okay. Okay. So I just want to put that out there because I imagine there's a lot of people that will find your story uncomfortable. And that's probably what drives you to do some of what you do and the the awareness you spread and, and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. So I'm feeling quite vulnerable in this vulnerable and excited and slightly nervous in this okay. interview. Um, but let's, let's have you tell your story and let's work through that because I think there's just so many things I'd love to discuss with you along okay. that. And um, yeah, don't hold back, even though I've just said you're going to probably break me right now. <laughs> so where would you like me to start? So, I mean, let, let's start at the, um, obviously you were, you know, at school, leaving school, deciding what to do with your life and mm-hmm. you made quite a, a big decision at that point. So let, let's go from there and, and just follow it through. Yeah. So I was about 15 and a half, you know, I was approaching the end of compulsory education, the GCSEs uh, were on the horizon. And although, you know, you get guided and coached, about the next steps from the teachers and everyone at the school, you know, as a young 15 year old kid, you take a little bit of notice, but you kind of pay lip service to a lot of it. Cause you just lived in this bubble where your mum and dad have looked after you. The teachers have looked after you, granny and granddad have looked after you. And I was just walking down the corridor one day and it kind of hit me. And I thought I have to look after myself soon. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to be 16 soon. And I'm going to finish school and I need to make some choices. Like really, I need to listen to what these grown-ups are telling me and make some choices. Now, do I want to continue with my education, go to college, potentially university, get some more academic qualifications and then pick a career? Or do I just want to bust out of this now and get into the big bad world and start a career at a much younger age? Now, I didn't dislike school. I wasn't great. I wasn't poor. I, I came out with 10 GCSEs. Nine of them were A to Cs and I got one D. So I did pretty well considering I won't go into detail. I was a, just a young, energetic, cheeky kid at school, was in a trouble a fair bit, but never for anything serious, just being too cheeky. Um, so I could have went on to further education, but I just felt that I wanted to go down a different path. Now, all the people that I grew up with who went to my school were like two or three years older than me. And some of them were already out on their career path. Some were in the army, some were in the Navy, some had gone on to university. But I gravitated towards the the friends of mine that were in the military. You know, they come home from, from Germany or wherever they were on the weekends or when they had leave and they had new cars and they're always out with beers and, and partying and they always have money. And I just thought, I think that's kind of what I want to do. Not for the, the car and the beers and all that kind of stuff, but the stories they tell me and they come back and say, oh, we had a nine mile run, you know, last week. And, and I really liked the way that sounded, that physical and that discipline side of stuff. 
So one of those guys took me to the career center and he introduced me to the army recruiter. And I watched the video, got the paperwork. I took it home because I was so young. I had to get my parents to sign it. And then my dad told me that I had an uncle who was a Royal Marine. Um, he wasn't an uncle uncle. He's one of those guys in the family that you always call uncle. Um, and he had joined the Marines, uh, did a full 22 year career, gone from entry level, which is uh, the ranks Marine is equivalent to private in the army. Climbed all the way up 22 years later, left as a captain. So he only lived 15 miles at the road. So we jumped in the car, went up to see him. He talked me through his career he told me why the Royal Marines were different to the army. Then I went back to the career center on my own the following week, spoke to the Royal Marines recruiter. And I remember it, it was, so it was one of these TVs when they started putting the TV video combi together and you had to put the VHS in <laughs> under the screen. And uh, people won't even know what a VHS cassette <laughs> is now, but um, he put this video in it and I just sat there with my jaw on the floor. Because I saw these guys, right, and they were what we call fast roping out of helicopters. They were on speedboats. They had these huge packs on their back, and they're just walking and just like. And I just looked at them like, "Damn, these guys are fit." And then they were in the jungle, the desert, the woodland, the Arctic. They just looked like they did everything all over the world at the, the drop of a hat, like the all round kind of testosterone fueled alpha male elite soldier. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. And so I took the paper out home, got it signed, sent it off, finished, uh, finished up at school. Then I got invited to do what, what used to be called the potential Royal Marines course, which is three days in Exmouth at Limpston, the commander training center of just getting hammered. Uh, it's a three day, what we call used to call a beast in just, physically, mentally, lack of sleep, just trying to, it's an, it's an opportunity really for the, the people like me that are on the course to see actually, is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? And it's an opportunity for the instructors to say, he's ready, he's ready, he's not, he is, he's not. And it's a pass and fail thing. Um, luckily I passed it. So I went home and uh, started going through the process of the letters were turning up saying, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. There's your fitness routine. You need to start running in boots, all that kind of stuff to build you up and prep you for it. And then February, 2001, I, I got back on the train. Uh, it's only a 45 minute train journey from my house, from Plymouth to Exmouth, turned up at the commander training center and started that crazy journey that, that I went on. Um, and it was rough. It was rough. Um, I don't know how much you know about about the military or particularly with the uh, the Royal Marines, but it's arguably the longest and hardest regular forces infantry training in the world. So it is, it, when I did it, it was 30 weeks. It then changed to 32 because they introduced a lot more weapon systems. And now it's, I believe that three-day course that I did is now spread out over the course of four weeks, uh, which reduces injuries. So it's, it's now, I think from start to finish, if you do it in one hit, like I did, it's at least 36 weeks. When you factor in Easter leave, summer leave, um, Christmas leave, you're looking at well over a year. Yeah, and that's if you do it in one hit, if you don't get injured and if you make the grade at every 
every interval. So it's a long old process. And I was only 17 when I started it. And I'm always honest about this. You know, I don't believe in kind of hamming it up or anything, but it was scary. You know, I got there 17 years old. The first two weeks is where you get taught to iron your uniform, to polish your boots. Everything as basic as wash your body. You get you get given a demonstration. A guy just strips off naked in front of you. You're all around the shower and he shows you how to wash. Just, I think, so that you can never have any excuses for not doing it. You know, it's so it's so basic and everyone does it. But on that one occasion, if someone doesn't, they go, well, we've showed you how to do it. You've got no excuses. And it was scary. 64 people, never met anyone before in my life. I was the second youngest in that room. It's In the first two weeks, you're in one big room. So there's like 60 odd beds. And it's kind of like what you would see in the movies. You know, the lights come on at five o'clock in the morning. Someone comes in screaming and shouting. You're out your bed at attention. And then you go for the day, you know, physical training, mental training, uh, military training, you know, just all this stuff. It's like a, a baptism by fire. You know, you go in there and it is, you're working at 150 mile an hour from the first day you get there. And when you come out at the end of it, you're obviously there's the, the, the physical changes that happen in terms of tolerance and, and strength and all that kind of stuff. But from a mindset perspective as well, I imagine it's, well, I can't imagine you must be just a completely different person at the the other end of that. Yeah, I think you, you kind of go in, and if this is you here when you go in physically and mentally, that's your baseline. I think when you come out, because it is so tough and, and so full on, your baseline just ends up being way above where it was when you started. And, and you don't really even realize it. It's not until you look back years later that you realize the whole the mental toughness side of it because you're just so entangled in the physical side of it. You don't realize how much you're growing and developing mentally. And it, and it absolutely does, you know, from, and from so many different angles, like for me, first of all, just being surrounded by all those people. And only, even though I was 45 minutes from, from home, I felt like I was on the other side of the world and I was alone and lonely and, and scared and vulnerable and so you you grow because you just push through that and then that becomes comfortable to you. Then they start physically building you up and something that, you know, four mile run or whatever, it, it was difficult back then, but it's very manageable. But then they start adding weight in. Then you've got to do it in boots. Then the distance gets more until you're doing eight, nine, 10 miles. And then that becomes, it's not easy, but it becomes your new baseline and it becomes comfortable. And then at the end, of all that training, so you've got all the, you go from a, a civilian to a soldier. So you learn, you know, weapons training, field tactics. You learn how to survive in certain situations. You learn how to, to fight in certain situations. You learn all that kind of stuff. And you just come out the other end, a, a massively different person. The, the, the personal growth you experience, in my opinion, and I'm 37 now and I've done a, a lot of stuff. It is second to none, you know, and you re you realize there was so many times during the course when you realize that the little voice in your head that tells you to quit, when that starts to kick in, your body has got so much left in it, probably 50 to 60%. 
you know, when your shins are hurt and your back hurts, you're, you're bleeding, you're covered in cuts and bruises and your lungs are burning, your heart's busting out your chest and you just want to stop and walk or drop your, your what we call your bargain and just, you know, do what's easy. You realize that when your, your brain's like, this hurts, this is horrible, stop, you've got a choice, that you're, you're nowhere near that point where your body's going to stop and you've just got to take control of, of your mind and just keep telling yourself, I can keep going. I can keep until you. And I got to this point where my mindset was until my body actually starts to shut down, right? My legs stop working and they just go to like jelly and I can't stand up. Then I'm just going to keep on going and keep on going and keep on going because the people training me are experts in what they do and it's all, it's safe. No one's going to let me push myself to a point where I endanger myself. So I'm just going to keep on pushing. And it, it taught me so much, not just about myself, but about other people. Because I'm, I'm not the fittest man in, in the world. Like when I went through that training, I would, if there are 60 of us out on a run, I'd be in the last 10 every single time. Because I, I wasn't ever built for running and I didn't like it. And I never had any passion for it. But when I saw those men who would come in first, second, third, fourth, and they took us out maybe for a week to teach us some military tactics. And on day one, they throw you in a river and you're cold and you're wet. And then as the days progress, you've had less food, less sleep. You see these guys start to break. You see these guys that are super fit start to break because they're not necessarily mentally fit. You know, and, and that really changed the game for me. You know, I'd sit there and where I was always dragging ass on the physical stuff, I would sit there and think, well, actually, I'm coming out on top here when it's the mental stuff. You know, I can do the sleep deprivation, the food deprivation, you know, being cold and wet for six or seven days in a row isn't fun, but I can handle it. I can figure out ways to mentally overcome that where the guys that were super fit, some of them didn't seem to be able to do it. And it just, it it blew my mind, really, because I just thought, like a lot of people, you've got to be an Olympic-level athlete to be a Royal Marine, but you don't. You need to have a, a high base level of physical fitness, but if you can't be cold, wet, food-deprived, sleep-deprived, if you can't, if you're not switched on enough to understand what they're teaching you about how to patrol over certain different terrains, or if you come under contact, out of break contact, out of fight through a position, if you're out of do fighting in built-up areas, kicking in doors and throwing in grenades. If you can't understand how to do that, but you're super fit, you're not good enough. You have to be able to do all of it. So it was okay that I wasn't super fit because I got all the other stuff, which kind of dragged my average score up, which is how I was able to do it in, in one hit. And out of 64 of us that started, there were only 16 of us that, that managed that. So the attrition rate's massive. Wow. So... You've completed your training. Your your physical baseline is there. You've got this um, the, the, this elite mindset, mm-hmm. and you're ready to put all of this in practice. So yeah. What happens then? So, like I said, I, I started in February, two thousand one, and I finished my training in October two thousand one. So four weeks before we finished our training and, and our green berets we all witnessed 9-11. So I, I remember being stood in the, like the cafe on camp 
and we're at that stage now where all the physical stuff is is really done and we're just preparing for the ceremonial stuff so everyone's morale's high and everyone's always laughing and joking and we're kind of a bit more relaxed about the whole thing because we passed all the tests we need to pass and we just saw this happen and we knew straight away i was i was only 18 then and we all knew straight away that all this stuff we've been trained to do it just it felt a bit like a game to that point and then when we saw that I think everyone had the realization that actually we've been trained to do a job and now we're going to have to go and do it because of what's just happened. So in January, 2002, I started getting trained to go to Afghanistan on something called Operation Jakana. Uh, that didn't happen. I didn't go on that. It got really scaled back. So I stayed in the UK and deployed to places like Norway. So I learned to, how to operate in the Arctic and stuff like that. And then in early 2003, uh, we got told that we were going to Iraq. I think it was March 2003. So at 19 years old, um, that, that was my first operational deployment, uh, three and a half months in, in Iraq. I was working at, well, I spent probably a month in Kuwait went over the border and then was working at a place called Umkazar naval base. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, it was, it was a strange experience because I was trained for it. I was prepped for it and I was kind of hyped for it. You know, I'm a young 19 year old, arrogant testosterone fueled, you know, wannabe war hero, really excited about the prospect of, of going out and seeing if I'm able to do my job. And it was very anticlimactic. Like I went out there and used to spend a lot of time sitting around doing nothing. There was obviously the threat of chemical weapons in that situation. So I spent a lot of time, some quite scary times, you know, in, sat in um, trenches in a, in a gas mask and a full chemical biological warfare suit, but never really did any of the stuff that I thought we were going to do. Um, but, you know, at 19 years old, I had that experience. I came back and, and carried on with life. Were you disappointed? Do you know what it sounds? I don't know how it sounds, right, when I say that. But if I'm being honest, yes. Because I was young and, and I, you know what, so you don't even know back then, why you're going to these places, right? And what it is actually that you're doing, the big picture stuff, because you're just, you're young and naive and stupid. And you just think, well, I'm just here to look after my friend here, here, and here. And when that guy that outranks me tells me to do something, I'll just go and do it. And you don't ever look at, why are we doing this? What, what's the big picture? Is, is this the right thing? None of that. None of that crosses your mind. You just go and do what you're told uh, to the best of your ability and then come back. But yeah, I didn't. I, I thought I was going to come off the back of a helicopter, be crawling through the ground with a bayonet in my teeth, fighting off 50 men in one. And, you know, like, like you would see in a Rambo movie. And I got a really good suntan. You know, I kept really fit, running all the time, lifting weights, um, doing what I was asked to do. I was attached to a regimental aid post. So it was security for a lot of the ambulances and that kind of stuff. But didn't, ever fire a, a weapon once so yeah I, I came back and was a little bit disappointed 
You know, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So, I, mean, I, I know from what I've looked at, you you kind of, you then, you sort of returned to the UK, you d- just had your daughter um, and the opportunity, that kind of break opportunity comes up where you can leave, essentially. So, yeah, the, from, from what I've seen, you you chose to, to leave the Marines at that point. Yep. And I did. what happened there? So the relationship with my daughter's mother broke down just as I was coming to that point of leaving. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to do in my life. You know, when she was born, I thought, right, I need to be around now. And I've had my Green Beret and I've been to war and I'm not even 20 years old and some people can go a full career and and not have squeezed that much in so I felt like okay I've ticked some boxes I can hold my head high and I've achieved really what I wanted to but I'm still young so I'll start a new career at home but I didn't really know what I wanted to do and so I went through that whole leaving process and then the relationship breakdown and kind of lost my way a little bit and I ended up going to South Africa and I retrained as a bodyguard because I didn't really think I was good at anything. I could do the military thing and I, I was trained to do certain things. And I thought, well, what makes natural sense for me is to go into something similar, some sort of similar role where, you know, I'm doing that kind of work. So I, I retrained as a bodyguard uh, out in South Africa, came home, started looking for work, but I couldn't get it, you know despite there being an abundance of it out there, I think because of my age, I was probably 21 at this time. Uh, no one would, uh, no one would employ me. And I did a, like one of the, the most highest ranked courses in the world uh, out in South Africa. I came second on my course. The, the only guy that beat me was my roommate who was a pilot. So he's a lot smarter than I was. Um, and he beat me. So I was, I was qualified and good to go. I thought I've, been in the marines i've got combat experience i'll I'll get jobs all the time and i couldn't get anything and i was living on a friend's sofa at the time and i started working as a nightclub doorman because again i didn't think i had anything other to offer than that kind of work and it was at a time where that industry was being regulated and they brought in what's called the sia badge Mm -hmm. And I think they were trying to sweep away a lot of the old thug style doormen that were bullies and used to just enjoy beating people up. And, and there was a real transition period at that point. And there were a lot more professionals doing it rather than the old school, you know, tattooed, steroid fueled bullies. So the police were uh, quite negatively looking on us as, as nightclub security. And then I was getting in a fair bit of trouble. Um, on, on a regular basis to the point where I thought this is ridiculous. You know, I'm, I'm not really doing anything. I'm doing my job. I'm not a bully. I'm not going beyond what I should do. I was always trying to sort things out amicably, but it's difficult when people are drunk and they're, they're aggressive. And I just always seem to be on the wrong side of it. And I thought this is going really bad for me now. I, I, I'm struggling. I've got no money, nowhere to live. I'm always in trouble. How did it go so wrong so quick? So I decided that I was going to go back in the Marines and I went down to the career center and I spoke to the, the recruiter 
and I'd only been a civilian for about 12 months. So there was no need for me to do the training again. Every 12 months in the military, you've got to do a shooting test, a fitness test. They'll put a gas mask on you and throw you in a CS chamber to make sure you can do all that stuff. Just basic annual tests. And because I'd only been a civilian a year, that's all I had to do. So I went and did those tests over the, the course of four weeks and was back in uniform again, ready to pick up my career where I left off early in 2007. Now, to this point, I had been based in Limpston, Poole, Royal Marines Headquarters, 539 Assault Squadron, uh, all kind of Devon-based units. And now I got sent to, not, not very far from Devon, but to Taunton, to, to Somerset, to a place called 40 Commando. And they were, Afghanistan now had, had picked back up from where it had stopped in kind of in 2002. It, it now it, it was ramping up again and things were getting serious out there. So when I joined my unit, they were already in the early stages of their pre-deployment training. So I joined the unit, got involved in the training, uh, March, May 2007, did a, a good couple of months training. And it, and it was, I kind of knew from the beginning because the training was so different that the deployment was going to be really different. It was a lot more high-paced, intense kind of pre-deployment training. And then on the 7th of September, 2007, we flew out. Uh, we flew out to Afghanistan to start a six-month tour. How did that go? She <laughs> says, knowing what the story is. Um. I don't think it went great for anybody um, that's ever been out there and deployed there, to be honest, or anyone that lives there. Um, but again, for me, I was only, I was 24 years old then. No, 20, yeah, 24. I just turned 24. Um, you know, surrounded by other testosterone-fueled males, wanting to go out there and show the world how great I thought I was. So I was, was excited at the prospect of, of deploying and testing myself again. We spent a couple of days in a place called Camp Bastion, just acclimatizing, getting our bodies used to being in the desert, getting our kit and equipment used to being in the desert so that it was operating right. And then we flew out to a place called Forward Operating Base Robinson that was situated in Helmand Province where the, the really intense fighting had been going on. Now, our job was to, we have what's called an area of operations. That's our responsibility for looking after it, trying to protect the civilians that live there so that they can live their lives, um, hunting down the enemy and, and, and chasing them out of the area, that kind of stuff. And so that's what we did. You know, we'd go on patrols. We would disrupt enemy positions. We would confiscate or destroy weapons caches that we found. We would provide security and food and water for the civilians. Some of the guys were involved in building schools and that kind of stuff. And it was going all right. You know, we'd done three and a half months. We had made a lot of progress, a lot of positive progress. We were, we, we, we felt we were really helping the community and giving them a better quality of life. We had a lot of contact with the enemy, lots of fights, uh, never been injured once no, no one that I was working with ever sustained any injuries. So we were, you know, morale within our unit was pretty high. And then on Christmas Eve, 2007, we got tasked with going on another foot patrol. 
Now, to this point, the patrols that we had been on, they had like a mission and a purpose, right? It was, you know, there's a weapon cache here, go and get it. There's an enemy position there, go disturb it. We'd go out for five, six, seven hours, go two, three, four, five miles, whatever it was, and then come back. The idea of this patrol was just to, it was just kind of like a way of maintaining momentum. There wasn't really an objective to it. It was just to get us out and stop us going star crazy because we don't like to be locked up in the camp for too long. So the idea was that we would leave the rear entrance of our camp in two sections, right? With eight men in each section. One would go north, one would go south. We would patrol the immediate perimeter of the camp. We got told we don't push any more than 300 meters from the perimeter wall. We would then meet at the front entrance of the camp. So now the opposite side, secure that location, you know, close things down and finish up for the day. And then we were going to get a couple of days R&R where we could open up our mail for Christmas and have a bit of a Christmas dinner and all that kind of stuff. So very basic, low level, standard stuff. Nothing that we had any cause for concern about conducting. We had no intelligence to say that it was, you know, dangerous for any other reason than what we've been doing to that point. So we were good to go. And we got the green light, the rear entrance to the camp opened. I was second in command of the guys that went north. The other guys went south and we went out and we conducted a patrol. About five hours into it, we now both find ourselves, both these sections are at the front entrance of the camp, ready to finish up for the day. And the section that I was in were placed on a, a high piece of ground, what we called the North Fort. Now, underneath us was our base. So we could look down and, and see from like a bird's eye view, if you like, uh, Ford Operating Base Robinson. And then beneath that was the other group that we left with earlier in the day. So we were in a very tactically advantageous position. They were very vulnerable. We could see everything around us. It's a lot easier to fight going downhill than it is uphill. So we got tasked with giving them what we call overwatch, which means we'll all take up fire positions. We'll protect them. They'll walk back into the camp, get behind the perimeter wall. They're protected. They return the favor. They protect us while we come down off this high feature, go back in or really just standard, what we call standard operating procedures, stuff we've done a million times. So the section commander up on this high feature takes half of the section and starts giving them their fire positions. I take my half of the section and in front of me was like a, a shallow bowl in the ground, like a, a little dip. Now, normally what you would do in this situation when you go firm on a patrol is you want to get behind a building or a wall or a tree or a rock or a shrub or get in a ditch something that's going to give you a little bit of protection in case you get attacked by the enemy now this little bowl was in my mind we're on this high feature it's like a ridge line there's nowhere we can really take cover that was the best form of protection i thought we'd get in there get on our stomachs no one's going to be able to really see us you know so it means they can't attack us so I jump in, the half of the section that I was with start taking their fire positions. I had selected my fire position uh, kind of halfway between the two splits of the section and they were happy. So they gave me the thumbs up. I had a, a couple of last minute checks I had to do to make sure that we were defensive in case we were attacked. When I was happy and they were happy, I slowly started walking over towards the position that I selected for myself. And as I got there, 
I went to get down onto my stomach and as my right knee hit the floor, that was the moment that I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Mm-hmm. Merry Christmas. So we come to the bit that makes me uncomfortable now that I have no words for. Okay. So in that moment, I think when I've sort of listening to you talk and um, I watched some of the, the, the documentary that you've got on YouTube and, and stuff like that. But at, at this point, it's really clear to me just all of that training comes into its own in terms of the response in that moment. So mm-hmm. let's talk about what happened to you and how that team responded to that situation. All right, so you've got to imagine like the terrain in Afghanistan is, is very sandy. It's very dusty. So when this IED exploded, it created a dust cloud, you know, so temporarily I and the rest of the section were blinded. Now I felt no pain. My adrenaline had spiked. My fight or flight response had kicked in. And my initial instinct was that we had been attacked. You know, I, I just, I heard this explosion. I can't see anything. I'm not in any pain. So I thought someone had fired a mortar or an RPG or, or a rocket on our position. It had exploded nearby. And now we're about to get into a fight. Now, behind me, about 600 meters to my rear, down beneath me where the other section were, there was a small rectangular forestry block right, of, of trees. And everything else around that was just mud fields, just flat mud fields. So in that instant chaos, I thought to myself, that's where the attacks obviously came from. They're, they're hidden. They've, they've launched a, a rocket from a hidden position. I need to find out where they are and neutralize the threat. So in my mind, while all this chaos is going on and I'm getting ready to fight as soon as this dust cloud cleared, I'm saying to myself, turn around, turn around, turn around, turn around, because I knew that this was, this forest area was behind me. And I'm saying, turn around, ID the target and start shooting. Because when I've ID'd where the, the attacks come from, everyone else will then see where I'm shooting and we can neutralize it and make a tactical withdrawal. After about five times in my mind of saying, turn around, turn around, turn around, I realized that my body wasn't moving and, and I didn't know why. And you got to imagine like it's, it's chaos, right? Like there's so many things going on and like everything outside you is going in slow motion, but everything inside is going at like 3000 miles an hour. So I'm like, turn around. Why aren't you turning around? What's happening? I can't see anything. Why am I, Why can't I move? What's going on? Confusion, chaos. And so I just stopped and I thought, I need to see what's happening here. Now I can make more sense of it. Then I can make some decisions and then we can get everyone out safe. So I waited and the dust cloud got to about chest height and I looked around and I couldn't see anybody. Uh, I think they'd been kind of blasted out of the area. So I carried on waiting And then the dust cloud eventually got to the floor and dissipated. And as it did, you know, I looked down to where my legs should have been and they'd both been completely torn off from the knees down. 
Now I'll do the quick version of this and I'll try and keep it as comfortable as I can because I know you do feel it a bit uncomfortable, but basically... Don't hold back. Don't hold okay. back. Yeah, go for it. So it was very surreal. Again, no pain. Um, I think my, my brain was struggling massively to comprehend and process what it was actually looking at. Uh, wasn't scared. Wasn't in any pain. My main thought was the rest of my section. So I started looking around again and I saw the guy in charge, uh, Corporal Halesby. We went through training together in 2001. I'd known him a long time. I trusted him and I looked at his face. You know, while I'm trying to make sense of what I was looking at just now, I looked at his face and it kind of said to me, I mean, he was in shock, obviously. And I, I still didn't believe what I had just seen. So I went to look back to my legs and as I got to about the three o'clock position, I started sweeping the, the, the ground with my eyes. I saw my, my arm kind of lying there in the sand. You know, it was still attached, um, but from my bicep to my wrist, the whole thing was torn open. My, my hand was still in relatively good condition and I picked it up and I just held it in front of my face and just kind of turned it around a little bit to look at it. Just like in like not believing what I was looking at. You know, I'm, I'm looking at where my legs should have been. My arm looked like about four pit bulls had just been chewing on it. It was just a mess. All the bone had been shattered. There was flesh and bone and muscle and tissue everywhere. But I wasn't in any pain and I couldn't understand what was going on. It just, you know, kind of, it was very, very difficult to understand. And uh, I eventually, and this is all in like seconds, it eventually all came crashing down at, this, at once. And I, I realized I've stood on a landmine. I'm, I'm the idiot. That's put everyone in danger. You know, I could potentially die right now. You know, this is, this is it. You know, you're 24 years old, you know, young, full life ahead of you. You're about to die. But I, I strangely felt at peace with that because to me, it felt honorable. You know, I was serving my country. I was trying to do something to help people that needed help. And, and I was okay with that. And so, you know, I just lay there and, and waited to die because, you know, you mentioned earlier about the training that we do. We're, we're trained in this situation not to get emotional. So the other seven guys in my section, every instinct in your body says, run in and help my friend, he's going to die. But we're trained not to because you have no idea if that's a single device or you're in a minefield. As it turned out, there were seven other devices. So if you come charging in, you risk either killing yourself, injuring yourself, or killing me. So there's a, there's a process you have to go through. And everyone has their own responsibility. So one guy gets straight on the radio. He calls in what's called a nine-liner. And that's, uh, that's the start of the evacuation process. You've got another guy who's making sure there's an all-round defensive cordon in case there's a follow-up attack with AK-47s or whatever, and people try and take us out that way. You've got the guy closest to you, his job, he'll pull the bayonet out or something that you can prod the ground with, and he will get on his belly and he will prod the ground at like a 45-degree angle, feeling for other devices, and then take some markers and mark a path so that when the medic gets there, he knows the safest route to run straight to me. 
anyone else is just sat there primed, ready to fight in case there is a follow-on attack. So they, they can't come running in to save me. And I knew that, you know, and, and I'm looking at me and all the blood and the claret and everything coming out and thinking, there's no way I'm going to survive this. But at the same time, in the back of my mind, I thought, I have got the most professional, most highly trained people around me now trying to get me out of this. And that's why I knew I was going to be okay. Now, the medic got to me very quickly. We were right outside the camp and he got to me very quickly and he jumped in this crater. He started applying tourniquets to my limbs. Can you hear that? Okay. No? Okay, cool. He started applying tourniquets to my limbs and then he got a stretcher out and got me ready to move. Now, I don't felt any pain to this point and, and I apologize if this is a bit uncomfortable, but um, he then hooked his arms under my armpits and dragged me onto the stretcher. And as he did, I felt uh, an intense shooting pain in my right leg. So I asked him to put me down and I looked down to where the pain was coming from. And there was like a thin piece of what, like rope kind of snaking in the ground, covered in dust and sand and, and blood. And I followed it and it went into my boot. So I picked the boot up. I don't know why I did this, but I picked it up and looked in it and my foot was in there. And obviously the weight of the foot and the boot where this guy had pulled me, this thin piece of rope must have been like a nerve or a tendon had stretched and caused the pain. So we had to pick my own foot up, cradle it on my stomach and then take me out of this crater and then down off this high feature to where a vehicle was waiting to collect me. On the way back into the camp, we had to go up a hill. Now these are not tarmac ropes. These are, you know, all terrain, pothole, riddled, you know, sandy, dusty kind of roads that you have to drive in some situations quite aggressively to be able to actually navigate the road. And, and this was going up a hill into our front gate and it was difficult to drive. So the, the driver had to be quite aggressive and he's hitting the accelerator and he's steering left to right to get up uh, this incline. And at one point, the medic fell out the back. Now I went out after him, but the guy driving kind of swang around as he saw in the mirror, me tumbling out the back, reached out and just grabbed for anything he could to hold me in the vehicle. And he ended up grabbing my femur bone that was poking out of my leg. I had a lot of morphine in me, so I didn't feel a thing. Um, he left the medic, which was fine because the other section we'd left with the eight, the eight men and they were down the bottom of the hill. So he was, he was safe. He was heavily protected by eight armed men. He drove me back into the camp. And the last thing I remember is the Chinook helicopter landing, the sandstorm that it creates from the propeller blades, the heat that came out of the exhaust and the mechanical noise of the tailgate dropping as the medics rushed out the back. And that was when I, I blacked out and found out later that they had tagged me as dead. Um, and just throw me on the back of a helicopter. Now, I don't remember anything from that point, but I have met all of the people that worked me in the back of the helicopter. 
And this is what they tell me happened. So the helicopter lands, the tailgate comes down, they throw me on the back. There was also another guy injured, uh, a guy called Stu, and he had shrapnel wounds to his back and his upper arm. And this sounds harsh, but in, in a wartime scenario, in this situation with casualties, there's a certain way you prioritize who gets worked on and who doesn't. Now, if you've got a guy that's dead and a guy that's dying, it makes sense that you want to put all your, your focus on the guy that's dying because you don't want two guys that are dead. So they felt me for a pulse and I didn't have one. They tried putting intravenous lines into my veins to give me fluids, but all my veins had collapsed because of the blood loss. And then they put an oxygen mask on me, which they said should have steamed up if I was breathing, but it didn't. So they said, this guy's gone, put me in the corner of the helicopter and put all their attention on Stu. Luckily, one of the medics walked past me to get some equipment to go to work back on Stu. And he said that my eyes started fluttering, which meant that my heart was still beating. So he alerted a bunch of the other medics. They came over to work on me. And th this is the incredible part, right? So three days before this, the whoever is in charge of the the military medical field had they had cleared a new technique to be used where if you can't get fluids into somebody's veins because they have collapsed, you can drill into their tibia and their fibia, and you can get intravenous lines in through that method, which was great. Problem being, I didn't have any tibias or fibias because they've been ripped off by the IED. So these guys, I mean, it's, it's just phenomenal. Every time I think about it, like you got to imagine they're on the back of a Chinook helicopter, right? It's filled with sand and dust. You've got two high-end casualties. This helicopter's going from left to right, avoiding fire from the ground. And these guys are just everything in their checklist. They're like, we can't do this. We can't do this. We can't do this. We can't do this. We can't do this because of the state that I was in. So they very courageously decided we're going to try and drill into his hip and we'll put the intravenous line in there. It's never been done before, never been practiced before. It wasn't even a theory or a concept. No one ever even thought about it before. But these guys went, right, we're going to try that. So they drilled in the first time. Nothing happened. They said that my skin was too loose. So they stretched it. They drilled in again. And they said it bit the second time. And about three minutes after it did, I was awake, um, responsive, and, you know, not just going, uh, or, or babbling, but they would ask me questions and I would answer the questions. They said one of the main things about me where they all kind of burst out crying from relief was when I, I kind of came around and said that my, my ass was hurting, which was, a, I think it's a side effect of huge amounts of morphine. Um, and they just said that everyone just burst out laughing then because they knew I was going to be okay. But then they flew me back to a field hospital back at Camp Bastion. The surgeons had a look at the damage and they decided that, you know, although I had a lot more flesh available, it was all dead and, and I think they call it necrotized. So it was no good. So they found the healthy flesh, uh, which was above both my knees and my legs and, and above my elbow on my right arm. And they amputated in a, in a tent in a field hospital in Afghanistan, put me on a plane and flew me home. And I got to Selly Oak Hospital in Birmingham at around about four o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day. So yeah. not, so 24 hours 
Yeah, I, I've never even calculated. Obviously, there's a time difference with UK to Afghanistan time. But yeah, I, I'm guessing less than... They, they literally took me to the field hospital, performed surgery. I guess looking at all my vital signs, decided he'll survive the flight, he'll be fine. And got me on that plane as quick as they could and sent me home where they knew that the medical care would be better and it would be a lot safer. Do you know, it, it just, the way that you tell the story is so level, is so celebratory of the people that you were working with and their response to the situation that it's, it's hard it's hard to imagine the lack of panic. It's hard to explain the lack of panic. It's just that you, you've got to understand, right, that these people, whether it's the guys I'm on the ground with that I'm going to combat with, or whether it's the medics on the back, or whether it's the people that coordinate the logistics, whether it's the people that operate the radios, the level that they're trained at is second to none. Right? This isn't just a thing that they do for fun. It's something that they are extremely proud and passionate about. Whatever your role is in the military, you'll find 99% of the time people will do it to the highest level. And so when you're surrounded by those people, it kind of feels that like there isn't much that you need to panic about. Obviously, the situation was extreme, but I always just knew, I'm like, well, I'm good because I've got seven other blokes, so I know that will go to hell and back and put themselves at risk to save me. The same as I would have done had the rope been reversed and I was the one evacuating them, I would have done the same thing. I knew that when the helicopter landed, I'm going to have the best care that I could possibly have, the, the best kit, the best medics, the best doctors, everyone trained to the highest level who are brave and courageous and despite what they're about to be faced with they will be re remain professional you know they're not going to crumble they're not going to walk away and say i can't do this they're going to get to to work and do what they're trained to do and that's what they did you know and so i just kind of i think i just that's not what i was thinking at the time at all but when i look back at it i think there must have been a degree of subconscious thought there you know like i'm in trouble now but I couldn't ask for any better people around me to be looking after me. So I'm going to be okay. You know, and, um, and I was, I was ultimately. Mm. Um, and, I, and I always say this to people like, the, the re I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the reason I live my life the way that I do, and, and I'll tell you a little actually, before I put, I've got to put this in context, there was a little situation I found out later on a couple of years down the line that when I was stabilized in the field hospital on Christmas Eve and everyone was celebrating that they'd saved me, uh, some, a senior officer kind of chewed him out and said, do you honestly think you've done this guy the right thing? You know, he's a Royal Marine, he's 24, he's at the peak of his physical fitness. And now he's, I don't know that these are his words, but he's crippled for life. And it, and it brought everyone down. Right, And everyone started questioning themselves, thinking, have we done the right thing? And so now I like to live my life in a way where I hopefully can constantly tell them and show them on a daily basis that absolutely you did do the right thing. I've got three beautiful, healthy children. Two of them were born after I was injured. So absolutely you did the right thing because if you let me die, they wouldn't live. They wouldn't be alive right now, you know? And so 
this is why I'm, I'm a big advocate of, of gratitude and being grateful for everything that you've got, you know, and rather than focus on the fact that I don't have three limbs, I focus on the fact that I have the best prosthetic legs that money can buy. I have the best prosthetic arm that money can buy. I can live independently. I can drive a car. I can travel the world on my own still. I can earn a living still. You know, I can do all these things because of the day and age that we live in as a, as a disabled person. So, yeah, I kind of went off track a little bit there, but I just think that's something that's always important to talk about. Yeah, and, and I think that's, do you know, that there is the bit I find that affects me most. So I think there's so, there's so many people, everybody's got a story. Every, mm-hmm. Everybody's got a story, okay? And um, you, you have your own level of tolerance from a mm-hmm. stress, from an emotional perspective and whatever, you know, if you've had the kind of training you've had or if you've had no training before, it's all kind of, it's, it's, it's you and your experience, okay? It's what's in your head, it's your, your thoughts and your dreams and it's how big your world is. And however bad you've got it, there's always there's always going to be someone else where you look at their story and you go, oh my God, I can't imagine being in that situation. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, you, you when I heard, I can't remember the exact words, but you you sort of you talked about other people sharing stories with you that were disturbing, and I was like, mm-hmm. how can this guy ever find someone else's story disturbing? with what he's been through, you know? And, and, and I think it is the, these experiences create an outlook. Something always comes from it. Mm-hmm. I, one of the things that annoys me the most is when people contact me and they say, all right, Mark, um, my situation is nowhere near as bad as yours, but, and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me because of what you just said. So the way I can be so matter of fact with this and get on with it, someone else will look at the situation and think I couldn't cope, right? And and maybe they couldn't. But the effect this has had on my life to someone else, their goldfish dying could have the same effect on them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they were brought up differently or they didn't join the Marines or they don't have the tolerance or whatever, whatever. It doesn't matter. But that could be equally as devastating to them as this was to me. It's all relevant to the individual and their circumstances. So when people say it's not as bad as yours, I'm like, well, it is if that's in your world. If that, that could be in your world, that is as bad as what's happened to me. My world's just different to your world. You know? And so I always, I always say, let's stop. Stop, don't compare your your stuff to me. But you know what? When in the in the beginning, right, I was the UK's first triple amputee from Afghanistan. I think from the end of the, the first or second world war. And so I felt quite hard done by when I went to rehab, I'd see a guy walking down the corridor with one one foot missing, right? And I would just sit there and go, oh, I wish I could trade place with this guy. He's got it so easy. He's been in rehab half the time I've been in and he's about to leave, you know, and I'd always think how lucky that guy was. Sorry, that fire's getting a bit warm. <laughs> um, I'd always look at them guys and think, oh, they're so lucky. 
and every single day going through rehab to me was a battle physically and mentally, right? I'd, so my prosthetics, I'd get up and my groin would be cut from, from the prosthetic socket. I'd have blisters on the end of my legs. I still hadn't healed properly. I'd be bruised daily from falls and stuff. Where my alignment has changed in my spine, my back would feel like it was going to snap like some days. And I just didn't want to get out of bed in the mornings and do anything. And I used to get angry, like looking around thinking, these guys have got it so easy. I've lost both my legs. Not only have I lost both my legs, I've lost them above the knees, which brings a whole new level of difficulty. Not only have I lost my arm, I've lost my dominant arm and I've lost my dominant arm above the elbow. And it used to, used to really annoy me. And there was one time where it all changed, where I, I was very, very close to just quitting. I was still using a wheelchair. I was miserable. I had put on a lot of weight. You know, I had no kind of structure and I felt embarrassed of myself. And a friend of mine, I didn't know him before I met him in rehab. His dad was actually one of my instructors when I was going through training. He had been out in Norway on an exercise and he had jumped in the snow to do a snow angel and he headbutted a rock. And I, I forget which kind of plegic it is. I think tetraplegic, where basically he could move his arms like this little bit, but everything's from his neck. Do you know what I mean? He's right. got the use of his fingers, but pretty much 95% of his body doesn't work. It's all still there, but it doesn't work and it, it never will. And I was going in to eat one evening with the, the guys called Dom, Dominic. And I was feeling really sorry for myself and really low. And we were eating and I was just kind of being being a bit quiet and withdrawn and reflecting. And I, and I looked at Dom and I thought, how angry would he be? If I was him, right? And I was sat in a wheelchair and I had my legs, my arms, but they didn't work and they never would. And I'm never going to be able to walk again, ever, unless some super magic pill gets developed by some clever blood that gives him the ability to reattach his spinal cord. He's never going to be able to walk again, ever. And here I am with the world's best prosthetics, the world's best clinicians around me teaching me, but I'm crying about it because it hurts a little bit and it's a little bit hard. I guarantee he would change places with me in a heartbeat if he had the opportunity to walk again and stand tall under his own steam, but he had to put in a bit of hard work. And I kind of went back to my room that night and I thought, you need to kind of, that's the mindset you need to have. You're, you're lucky that you have this ability to walk and your future, you can be independent. You know, you need to be grateful for that. Dominic will never have that opportunity. He's got his arms and his legs, but they'll never work. He'll never be able to walk again. He'll have to have carers for the rest of his life. If you just stop moaning and you get on with it, push through the pain a little bit, you know, level up, get to the next bit and just keep a positive attitude, you're going to be able to be independent and you're going to be able to work and you're going to be able to stand up straight and you're going to be able to swim and everything that you've done before, it's just going to be slightly different. And that that changed my, my whole outlook on everything. You know, like everyone, there are other people that have it worse than you. Another, another this is a very, very quick story was, you know, my first day I went from hospital to rehab because I was a high what they class as a high dependency patient, I had my own room. There were four rooms behind the nurse's station. The other guys were in six-man rooms. And the first day I turned up there, my room was number four. So I had to go past rooms one to three. Two of them were empty. One of them had a guy in who was 19 years old. He had a hand grenade go off by his head. 
he had a huge chunk of his skull removed. He couldn't speak. And all that first night, he just screamed in pain. Like all night he was just, I had to put headphones in and he just screamed because he was in constant pain from, I guess, the, the traumatic brain injury. He had to be craned in and out of his bed. Again, another guy who would need care for the rest of his life. And it just really put things in perspective for me where I just thought, you've got a second chance here. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be really difficult to to get to where you want to go, but you've got the chance. They, they don't have that chance. So you need to get on with it and just put the effort in and, and just keep moving forward. Were there ever times in that, like even though you'd you'd had those experiences and you know looking at Dom and going past that room, were there times where you struggled to stay on that path then of okay, you know, that obviously at that point you're like, I've got this second opportunity, you know, I've got this second chance. I, you know, let's do it, let's make the prosthetics work, let's commit. But it's really hard to maintain that commitment. It's really hard to maintain that mindset. So what have the challenges been and how have you sort of resolved those along the way in in terms of keeping on track? So I'll I'll go back a bit because I think this is important. Uh, There were two times during my recovery where I genuinely wanted to take my own life. The first one was three and a half weeks into it when a, a doctor with 33 plus years experience of amputating people's limbs told me that I'd be wheelchair bound for the rest of my life because of the extent of my injuries. I didn't handle that very well. And then the second time was when I, within that first six weeks that I did in hospital, I got to leave the hospital for the first time in a wheelchair and I went to a, a welfare flat where my family was staying and it was in a tower block. So I could get in through the communal door. I could get in through the front door, but I couldn't access any of the rooms in the flat because I had a one-handed wheelchair, which is extra wide. So I had to sit in the hallway when I when I ate and everyone's watching the telly and I'm sat out in the hallway like I'd been like a, a scolded child who'd been naughty and just been punished. I had to, to pee in a milk bottle because I couldn't get in the toilet. And then, although in the hospital, I had used a mirror you know, from chest up for shaving and brushing my teeth. I'd never seen myself in a full length mirror. And we eventually, I got to stay in the flat overnight. We eventually figured out how I'd get my wheelchair. We, we pulled me out of the wheelchair, collapsed it down, put it through the thing. My dad picked me up, put me back in and uh, I got to access the room. And then I wheeled past the full length mirror. Now, less than two months. So I was only in hospital for six weeks. So probably about a month before this, at the most five weeks. I was in Afghanistan. I was six foot two inches tall. I was around about 16 stone in weight of just because I was so physically active. I was at the peak of my physical fitness. And now I looked in this mirror and without my legs on, I'm like four foot two. I was weighing, I think nine stone six. Obviously I'd lost three limbs, but I was also fighting off a lot of infections. So all my eyes were sunken. My, 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 head just looked like a skeleton with a bit of skin on it and I spent the entire night with my with my wife now Becky crying just telling her that I wanted to, to kill myself because I couldn't do it and then I woke up the next day I didn't wake up because I don't think I slept but 
I think just having a good cry really helped. And I, and I purged all that negativity and, and that crap out. Got up the next day and I'm like, right, we're doing this. And so we went to Headley Court after six weeks to start rehab. And that's where I discovered the importance of setting goals. And from the day I got there, I set myself goals. And that was really powerful and never letting me have the time or the opportunity to get in a negative headspace because I always had something to aim for. And every day when I woke up, when my groin was cut and, and bleeding and my legs were sore, my back was hurting, I woke up and because I had something to aim at, it motivated me to, to make progress, you know? And, and I say this all the time, like, even if I was just making 1% progress on the days when I was com- just so exhausted and wiped out, if I could just make 1% more progress, whether that meant an extra lap of the pool, another step of the parallel bars, keeping my legs on for another 15 minutes and, and enduring the pain for a little bit longer, then that was progress, you know? And, and having that those goals and just monitoring it and reflecting on it and celebrating the little wins kept me moving forward. And, and I, I, I was lucky enough to discover that early on. And it's been my life ever since. Just like now, this whole COVID thing, even in this, I, I just thought you've got to set yourself goals while you're here. Because if you just wake up every day with nothing to, to aim at and look forward to, you're going to really suffer, you know? So yeah, goal setting from day one in rehab was was the winner for me. Are you, um, in terms of the prosthetics, is that still an ongoing process or is like in terms of the rehab, is it, is it like never ending or? Yeah, pretty much rehab. You get to a certain level, right? Where you can class yourself as independent. So for me, that day for me was the 9th of June, 2009, but every day is different. You know, there's so much. So the way I walk is not the same as the way I run. It's not the same as the way I swim. It's not the same as the way I use a, a hand bike. It's not the same as the way I lift weights. It's, it's all different. It's a constant adventure, you know, and a journey trying to figure things out to, and there are so many options as well. Like there are like 50,000 options of how someone like me can run. There's 50,000 options of how someone like me can swim, but you've got to pick what, what works for you. And so rehab, yeah, it's, it's constantly evolving process and then they'll release new technology. So I've had, although I've always been at the the high end of the prosthetic provision, they've released two different versions of, of the legs that I now use since I was injured. So when they released a new model, it's like an iPhone, I think, you know, it's all new features and, and stuff like that. You have to learn again a little bit of, of, okay, what does this do? What does that do? How is that an advantage? Do I need that? Should I get rid of that? You know, all these different modes and settings. And so rehab is, is ever evolving. But the 9th of June, 2009 was the last time I used my wheelchair. So that's the kind of day that I said I became independent um, and, and took back control. Fantastic. Um, obviously, since that day, I'm getting conscious of time now for you. Um, but since that day, you've done some spectacular things as well. So yeah. you've not just, you know, the, the, st- the story up to now is amazing. It's truly amazing. And the, you know, pe- people talk about grit and they talk about resilience and they talk about elite mindset. 
but it's very difficult to describe and I think it's very you know what that is and I think that your story is a clear demonstration of that not only for your own experiences but from the the people that you served with that were there that day as well um but what one of the things I love is the fact that what we've talked about so far today is only part of your story you've not allowed Mm. that to define you Um, if we were to give the really short version of what kind of the things that you've accomplished since then, I'd love to spend more time on it, but I I know that time is ticking for you, but um, yeah. What have you done since then? That is kind of, you talk about like, it's just another thing on your CV. You talk with such humility and I'm like, Ah, why is this guy not shouting from the rooftops about it? <laughs> um, I'll try and rattle off a few things from, from memory in, in some sort of chronological order. But um, so I wrote my first book when I was in rehab. Uh, me, and a, me and a friend did that in the evenings because all the other guys were playing computer games and I couldn't do that with one arm. So we wrote a book. Um, and you can see behind me this this red jersey is when me and my friends ran across America from New York to LA, three and a half thousand miles. That's when we hand biked around the UK from Plymouth all the way around the coastline back to Plymouth, 3,200 miles. Um, I've spent the last 10 years, I've just left my job, but I spent the last 10 years working for the Royal Marines charity where I've uh, been involved in raising multiple millions of pounds uh, for the charity through numerous different things. I spent eight eight or nine years working as a speaker, so traveling the world, telling my story on different stages in front of different audiences. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, I've got three children. Two of them have um, come along since the injury. So although I don't, I don't class that technically as an achievement. It's something that I'm very proud of um, because that may not have happened had I not... Well, it definitely wouldn't have happened had I not survived, but it may not have happened given some of the complications that come along with it, with injuries like this. Um, I did the Invictus Games 2017, 2018, managed to bag 11 medals and the award for best athlete. Just about to finish my second book. I've already started writing a third one, which is more of a personal development one. I'm trying to take everything I've learned in my life and put it down on paper to help other people. Um, multiple businesses, property, um, Speaking, like I said, consultancy, all that kind of good stuff. I'm just trying to think now. Oh, and um, about about 12 months ago, just before the original COVID announcement, I signed a movie contract. So we're turning this story into a movie, but it got put on hold throughout COVID. And yeah, I'm just constantly trying to grow my social media. My big thing now, after 10 plus years of goal setting and the areas that they've been in like, my career, my family, my fitness and all that kind of stuff. I was in the military since I was 17 and business has not really been a big thing of mine. But now what I really want to do is focus on business, whether that be property, speaking. You know, I've got a very small range of of motivational clothing that a friend of mine helps me with. I'm really trying to figure out from other people how to maximize all that stuff because I want to 
I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, we live in a, in a day and age now where it couldn't be better to be a disabled person. You go back a hundred years, you know, you were almost a freak and you got put in a room and you had a wooden wheelchair and everyone, it didn't matter if you had, if you had a little injury, do you know what I mean? Everyone did everything for you and you didn't really, I don't think have a life. And it was very kind of looked look down upon, but now it's completely different and you can run a, a business from a mobile phone. I've got one arm, you know, and it's my, it was my weaker arm. And I just want to show people that because of all these resources that we've got around us, you know, don't just sit there and say, I, I can't do this. I can't do that because I've got this wrong with me, that wrong with me. You, you can run a business, you know, a lot of this stuff now I've, I've pivoted, like a lot of people have in the speaking world to doing this and I'm getting paid to do these things online now. So you don't even have to leave your home. You know, when, when you strip away everything that I've, that I've got on now, right. I take my legs off, take my arm off, take away my car, you know, st stick me in a house and keep me here. I can still earn a living and run a business. And I think it's, I'm not saying that in like a, you know, look at me where I just think it's phenomenal that we can do that. So I really want to now achieve a level of success, a high level of success in business to, to say to other people, look, you can do this too. I'm a dummy. I joined the Marines with 10 GCSEs at 17. That's all I've ever known. Well, I don't know anything about business or being an entrepreneur. I put it on my social media bios because it makes me look good, right? But I'm just, <laughs> I'm just muddling my way through it, trying to figure it out as I go. And if I can do it as a, you know, just a, a dude from the military with one arm, anyone can do it. And that's exciting. It's, it I, I get excited thinking about sh sharing out of people and then them looking and going, damn, you're right. Right. I'm going to start a Shopify account and, and sell stuff. I'm going to, sell stuff on Amazon or eBay. I'm going to, you know, I love painting. So I'm going to sell my paintings now and, and make a living from that and do it from my home. And do you know what I mean? It's, it's so cool that you can do all that stuff. So that's what my main focus is now. I love that. Absolutely love that. I, um, so years ago, years ago, I, I put this post on Instagram and it's kind of like, I don't, I don't want to be considered as inspiring because of the things that I've that have gone before I want to be inspiring because of the stuff I'm doing today and the stuff I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day and I, I really kind of um I really get that from you as well that's the, mm -hmm. one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and I, I think it's just such a, a powerful message that there are no excuses right and I, that's not a I have to be very careful because some people get offended when you say stuff like that and I don't mean it in an arrogant way as in you know Stop whining. There's no excuses. I mean it. And literally open your eyes. Like open your eyes and look around you, right? You, this is, this sounds so corny, but you can do anything. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I, I listen, I used to listen to a lot of um, Gary Vaynerchuk podcasts. And it, what he says is so right. Like, but people don't understand that if you have a passion for making jam, right? And I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but you start a YouTube channel right? And you start a jam brand. Like I live in Plymouth, right? And we get called Janners, right? Certainly do a living by the sea. So you start Janner Jam, right? And I get a logo and I start a YouTube channel and I teach people on YouTube how to make jam. When you get to a certain point, that's monetized. Yeah. And you just look at people that play computer. My, my kid watches guys that play. I just watched a guy the other day, right? who plays computer games online. He bought like 40 houses with his own money and gave them away for a dollar each. And I'm like, how much money is that guy making? Just doing what he loves on YouTube and making a living from it. 
So you can do anything. It's jam. You you love eating chocolate. You like reviewing movies, but you can't get into these big magazines that do it. Do your own thing. Start a YouTube channel. Build a following. Monetize the following. And then just be like, I'm doing what I love. And I'm on a, li- on a good living. Yeah. A real good living. You know? It's, it's, I don't know. It's just so, it is hard work. You know what I mean? It's not, you know, I think I've earned $20 on my YouTube channel like this month and I started a Facebook supporters group. I've got 75 people on there. They pay £3.49 a month and I've monetized it. Now that's so scalable. 75 people. I could, there's on the, my Facebook page is attached to, there's 32,000 people. If I can convert 32,000 people that are on my page to hit a blue supporter button, I don't even know how much income that is I'm making, but I can then travel the world and do what I do. And I'm living from it. You know, it's it really is. There's no excuses. There's always a way. And you might have to ask for help to, to get there, but you will get there if you want to. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that nothing, um, you know, anything that's good in life, in the world, there's always pain along the way. That that comes from pain and hardship and, and difficulty. And, and I think it is that yeah you know like no no pain no gain and the rest of it but it's just it's so so true it's Mm -hmm. so so true mark it's been such a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for your time um i really appreciate it you've mentioned your facebook page already but just let us know because it's what happens on every podcast with a guest let everyone know where to reach out to you where to follow you i'm everywhere um facebook instagram linkedin i'm a little bit embarrassed to say tiktok i don't use it very much but i, I got on there just because everyone else was uh is my website but all, all my handles my social media handles are just at mark ormrod um there's no underscores or characters or anything like that it's, it's very easy to find me fantastic thanks again mark and um just wow Wow, I just feel really, really privileged to have spent this time with you today. Thank you. I appreciate it.